Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk, if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art? Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host, Miguel Valdez. And today, I have a visitor from New Mexico. New Mexico poet and writer, Lauren Camp. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm good. Thanks for having me here. So you've been here in Minnesota for the past, what, three days? I got here Saturday. Yeah, I guess so. It's been a whirlwind three days. How was the weather when you left? When I left New Mexico, it was 77 the day before I left. And is that typical this time of the year? Shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be. But um, it was beautiful. And then I tried to come into the Midwest, and it was a whole different weather system. Can you share with our friends... um, what is the reason that you're visiting here at the Midwest today? Well, it began with the idea that I would give a talk for the Mayo, sponsored by the Mayo Clinic, uh, on my third book, 100 Hungers. And then the trip evolved and grew all sorts of other very wonderful opportunities. So I ended up doing presentations for the Mayo High School, the Alternative Learning Center. I am doing two workshops. Um, The community came together in other ways. The Southeast Minnesota poets also wanted to get involved. So there was a community poetry reading. University of Minnesota Rochester got involved. So I ended up doing two presentations and all these other things. It's been amazing, actually. That's good. And this is your second time to Minnesota? You this were is my second time. I was here in June one other time, so I'm getting a very different perspective with all the snow and slush. Great. Also, um, you were sharing with me, you shared during the presentation that you grew up um, in the East Coast, in New York area? I grew up in New York. And also, you also live in the past in, in the West Coast, in the Bay Area? Right. And how was that transition? You were also early, when I met you, you were sharing that one day you were on a road trip and then you choose that place. How how someone get to that point? How was your your trip? My... Your road trip. My understanding of places was based on all the places we would visit um, when I was a kid. So we... I grew up in New York. We would go up and down the northeast coast, basically. Washington, D.C., Boston, Philadelphia. Um, That's where we would go on family vacations. Or we would go to California, mostly. So the southwest, the sort of more center part, west-centered part of the country, we just missed. We missed the Midwest. We never went. Um, we, We had never come here we just went kind of around the outskirts of the country. And at some point um, in, well, to be really specific, in 1993, I think it was, my husband and I took 
quit our jobs and put everything in storage and took a two-month camping trip through the Southwest with the intention of hopefully finding a new place to live. It was pre-internet, and we drove into Santa Fe. So you used to carry those big Atlas map books? We had, no, we just had little fold-out maps there. We still have them. They're, they're like, disintegrating, but they have our route on them. Um, we went to all the national parks, We, and I had never been to, I had never seen anything like that before. Um, the topography, the terrain, the colors. We drove into Santa Fe at one point a little more than halfway through the trip and I said I'm staying here this is where I want to live and we bought our house we were camping in the forest and in a tent and um, making phone calls from outside the health food store on the payphone. and we bought our house and we're still in it 24 years later so it was a good move um, we had a lot of learning to do about the southwest but very very happy to do be there do you remember what uh, CDs or cassettes? Were you listening? <laughs> oh, I'm sure we were listening to jazz. Good question. But uh, both of us big jazz fans, so I'm sure we were listening to Thelonious Monk and other. Nice. Yeah. How was growing up in the West Coast from uh, being a first generation of of uh, immigrant in the East Coast? I mean, in the East Coast. Um, my fa your, your father. My father. I'm first generation on one side. My okay. father's from Iraq and my mother's from Oklahoma. So also an exotic country in a way. <laughs> um, and uh, how was it? It was what I knew. It was all I knew. I was in New York my entire childhood and youth. Um, and I even went to college in New York. So it, I really did not, aside from vacations, didn't leave that state as a resident until I was 21 or so. Was your dad looking or was part of the of uh, immigrant community? Was he close to the culture? He, or being in New York, being so... Uh, he wasn't, he, but he had such a big family that, that, that they sort of formed their own immigrant okay. community in a way. His parents uh, still lived in the house they emigrated to in 1950, um, which is in... Uh, a town called Cedarhurst. It's actually probably a city um, in Long Island. And we would go visit them every two or three weeks. My cousins would come and just everybody, the whole huge family or whoever was in town and available would come and congregate there. So we had our little um, our little tribe in a way that mm -hmm. that where people just gathered and uh, and we knew everyone. And liked or didn't like everyone because that's how family is, right? How was it uh, when friends of you who come to your house and they would try if there was a traditional meal? And the reason I ask is this because my kids bring friends and they always want to try. Well, we didn't. We didn't actually have. My mother didn't know how to cook traditional Arab Arabic food mm -hmm. because my grandmother, my father's mother, wouldn't give her any of the recipes. She wouldn't tell her anything. And I think that I've thought a lot about this. I think that was because my grandmother, that was her identity, was the food she prepared. And so she didn't want to give away those trade secrets. We all loved her food. Her food was absolutely amazing. But if I didn't bring friends to my grandparents' house, which I didn't because it was a long way, um, they never, they were never exposed to it. Hmm. What about um, 
So, how long did you stay in uh, in the East Coast, or do you went to college? I went to yeah, I went to university at Cornell in okay. Ithaca, um, upstate, and then I went. Then I moved and did graduate work in Boston. And after a second Boston winter, a particularly bad one, I said, "That's it, I'm done," and I moved to California. Okay. To the um, to the East Bay. Well, I moved to San Francisco first. And at what at what point does someone, or in your case, you call yourself a poet? At what point does someone do that? Yeah. Depen- they, yeah, it depends you, on how brave uh, you are. Yeah. <laughs> at what point do you introduce yourself? Oh, hi, I'm Lorena, and I'm a poet. Do you remember? I, I I love that question because I teach at home in New Mexico and elsewhere. And I see a lot of people, I call my students writers, and they say, oh, I'm not a writer. I'm, I'm just like, I'm so new at this. So I think when you're a beginner, you really don't feel confident being able to say that. And so maybe, I don't remember exactly when I did, but, but I think it takes a kind of, a bit of confidence, a, like a maybe publication credits or something where other people recognize you that way. But I came into poetry through visual art, which I did for, uh, I guess, somewhat concurrently, but for 14 years total. And so really my first, my, the first thing I identified as was a visual artist. And that I remember taking a long time before I felt comfortable saying it. But because I came through that pathway as a visual artist and had already gotten to the point where I was comfortable saying, I'm an artist. Hi, it's nice to meet you. By the time I came to poetry, it was not quite as difficult to make that leap, yeah. And today you share with us some of those uh, poems from your new book, 100 100 Hungers. And you shared your journey uh, with your dad, uh, Alzheimer's. That's correct. And dealing with dementia. How... uh, do you mention a little bit about it? Well, when I, um, I, my third book, 100 Hungers, uh, came out in late 2013, I'm sorry, late 2016. Um, I finished it late in 2013. It was the story of my father's childhood in Baghdad, Iraq, based on my imagination, because my dad okay. wouldn't answer any questions about his childhood and hadn't offered anything about his childhood while we were growing up. So that, that was its own issue. But in the meanwhile, when the book was accepted for publication, we didn't know this, but by the time the book came out, my family knew that my dad had, um, had memory issues. We didn't, we, we didn't know exactly what it was, but we knew he had significant memory issues. So it became a project of, um, so now I have an actual book, Um, It became a project of traveling around to share the story of his memories to the best of my ability to imagine them while he's losing his memory. And this is all things that you imagine? Or did he give some hints? He gave no hints. No. He he virtually gave no hints. How was Iraq during his years? Because you shared with me that he... Immigrate when he was fifteen. Correct. How was those during those years? Well, that was that was my um, puzzle. My thing to puzzle out was how was it for him as a child? He was born in 1935 and left in 1950. 
Turkey during World War Two. That's right. That's after. right. So, um, so learning. So, because Dad wouldn't tell me anything, I went to research. But research was not. It was there wasn't a lot about about the time about that perspective because I was trying to write Dad's perspective, mm-hmm. and that didn't exist. So then I was trying to write just to learn about firstborn firstborn males in the country. His family was Jewish, is Jewish, and and there wasn't that perspective available to me. There wasn't the opportunity. I didn't have the opportunity to travel there because of the danger mm-hmm. of traveling to that part of the world. The country was completely different. I would have been traveling as a female trying to understand a male perspective from 63 years before. I mean, it was just an impossible puzzle. Um, and it felt, it, I felt very inadequate to be able to do it right. So I kept going back in, looking for information. And really what I ended up working with, as much as what I could find research-wise, were a few things, some um, grainy photos, uh, um, recipes, a lot of food, Food which I knew because my I had had meal after meal after meal of Arabic food with my grandparents and my cousins, um, so I had that as as a memory I could hold. Uh, my connection to rituals and customs, um, religious customs and mm-hmm. family customs, and um, and I guess I also brought in just other ways that the culture fit into my world, um, and. Did I say music? Music and the language, okay. Arabic language, which I don't speak, but um, but the sound of it's very appealing to me. And were those ha- uh, family gatherings? Happen? Oh, they were wild. They were <laughs> they were fun. They were yeah. Everybody's talking. You know, none of my cousins spoke spoke Arabic, but all the parents did. All the, my grandparents were there. My grandparents were very traditional. My grandfather was the head of the household, and my grandmother did all the the cooking Mm -hmm. and pretty much sort of retreated to the kitchen a lot. She was very quiet, um, but she took care of her family through nourishing, through through food. Um, So the the gatherings were always huge, Mm -hmm. 30 people usually. Okay. And so fast forward... You mentioned about the publication and uh, you guys uh, coming to find about your dad's um, health status. Did he? Did you get a chance to express or show him uh, the book? He's not a reader, I, so I even when I was asking him questions, and I did, I tried to get information from him because he it was his story I wanted to tell. And so I went directly to him and said, I, you know, in my, in my mind, I thought, oh, okay, I want to tell Dad's story. I'll go to Dad. I'll ask him questions. He'll give me the answers. No problem. But that's not how it went. I went and asked him questions, and he, um, he got angry, basically. He... he just sort of shut me down, turned away from my questions, sent me off to some other person to answer. And um, and so I think he knew I was working on something, but he's not a reader, and he's certainly not a poetry reader. So it, it never happened that he read the book, or I think he read one or two of the poems, maybe before there was a book, but by the time the book came out, he was already 
pretty deeply in the the memory loss issue. Okay. So, how for somebody who's listening and and probably has experienced this in their family, how was how helpful has been for you to write poems? Incredibly. Oh, it's been incredibly helpful to have. Um, to have a reason to observe closely, e even if what I'm observing is, is memories or someone else's information, to, um, it's been incredibly helpful to craft, to be forced to not just write things down, but also to shape it. Um, all that's been very useful, both in remembering good things and hard things, or dealing with hard things. And what about, can you share also for somebody who doesn't know about this disease and, and what families or caregivers go through with your experience. Of dementia or Alzheimer's? Yeah. Um, How can you describe it? Or, or what would it be the first signs? Because sometimes even they, each individual is different. The first signs for my father, the first signs that I saw for my father were... Um, my, well, let me back up a little. My sister and I had an 80th birthday party for him. And it was, it was family, basically, a lot of family. And it was held in Philadelphia, where he was living. And the first things I saw were that he was wearing dirty clothes a lot, just clothes that, that weren't clean, though I think he intended to be clean. Um, he wasn't opening his mail for months, um, he had no food in his refrigerator. It looked like he hadn't taken a bath or a shower, like his, like his bath and shower hadn't been used. Um, so there were a lot of odd signs. And he also said everything was okay. Um, he told me at one point he was eating peanut butter and crackers for lunch. There were a lot of signs, all of which were odd. Okay. And... Now that you've been giving these talks, what about how therapeutic like it's been for you? It's been, it's been wonderful to write the poems, to get them out there. A lot of them have been published. Um, I keep writing them. I probably keep writing the same thing over and over in some way because there's a lot of repetition to the disease. But, you know, reading this morning for here at the Mayo Clinic was amazing and powerful for me to be reading, to be voicing these poems that I've worked incredibly hard on to an audience mostly filled with people I don't know, but to saying here, to be saying, here's my story, here's my family story. I was surprised at how, um, how extremely moving it felt to do that. Would you mind sharing one poem with us? Okay. Sorry for asking on the spot. I know this wasn't planned. I didn't share this with you, but I, I found those. It was really, really connect. And a lot of people also express that. Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, a longer one, shorter one? Do you care? Uh, whatever you, you care. want. Okay. Uh, this poem is called Our Daily Ration. Dad drifts through his clouds of surrounding concerns. I'm doomed, he says to his phone. 
I laugh to remind him the percussion of astonishment. To him, I know everything is abundant repetition. Photos of family, shells, bread, an old hat, and stopped watch lawn his dresser. His drawers are furred with paper towels folded in thirds between each black globe of rolled sock. Too much and less. A man storing escape. I slice celery for the crock pot, sigh in near-perfect pitch, and my articulations verge on defiance. I am now only chopping up silence, moving the small pieces into a bowl. There is no wind against my mouth. On the phone, my father murmured, What do I need with this life? It is impossible to better the words he rehearses. Could he hear me pretend? I section each carrot on the diagonal, peel the crisp white coat from the garlic, onion, its transparent wings, purple tears. I no longer cry despite minimal, inseparable hiding places. I wipe down the cutting board. Residue. Heat a spill of broth. My hands, my hands shape another nourishment as if reason is eased by the slightest touch. Nothing I can stop. The moon climbs the junipers to look at me, white and empty. I calculate where dad is in this disease by what he blames. So many chances to tilt. Windows, appetite. I bone fat away, drop in the cubed meat. Each day returns with the thin, exact blade of my father's voice. What has been cut from what he had yesterday? I stir the soup with a pine spoon. A breeze rivers this desert from the east. Because I know my father, I know my father is smiling, and this is wrong. He puts the smile to his mouth. Mountain sky, adobe holds its ordinary heat. I scratch scum from the still, still surface of the pot. I taste the stock and realize the assumption of apology. He pinches the closest word and drops it into the phone. I swallow. Hello, I say again. I am your oldest. I let that simmer. I don't understand what his ear needs, what the mouth gives. Leave it be he repeats when he can't remember the source of his thought. The sky is ceremonial. His lips hold his own forgiveness. I, stare at the st I stand at the stove in reveries, frontal tangle nerve. Not grief, but autumn. Not grief, but what speech has made me to defend. The hesitation stretches its chant. The hesitation reaches with an upper and lower. Everything I hear now overlaps points of time the size of faint recollections, and these variations evolve, tender, quiet. Tomorrow he may sound better. I introduce a final seasoning, strew the meat to ribbons. Soup at last, soup always better the next day. Here is a spoon. I made this. Let's sit on each side of the table. Long ago I had a father, the familiar was beginning. Later, much later, a prayer, a bowl. Thank you, Lauren. Of course. What does it take to write a poem? Patience. Honesty. 
attention. Maybe also empathy with whatever it is you're writing about. In this case, you're writing about this um, through this journey that you're going with the, with your dad. Have you done or does that help channel or have, or can you do a have you write poems in other things that is not directly affecting you in your day life? I have. I I write poems sometimes about. I wrote. I write a lot about the desert, about the weather in the desert, the terrain, because it appeals to me so much. Mm -hmm. But I also write about um, things that are called ekphrastic poems, poems about artwork or about artists. Um, I do that, which is sometimes, which allows me a kind of a step back. I mean, this is deeply personal, but those mm -hmm. allow a little space, and there's something, um, there's something gentle about not having to lay yourself open in all ways at all times. Um, I write about politics, I guess, sometimes, or how I feel about wanting to escape the politics of whatever's going on. I write about everything. I write about the things that matter to me, and which isn't everything, but it's sometimes that's a small thing, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's a huge thing. I found really similar of the poems that you share with us today, similar like storytelling. And you being down there, I don't know if somebody ever mentioned that to you because it sounds like it. It is in a way. It's because you're you're narrowing down to a small episode in a way. You're not telling the whole story. I mean, I could come in here and I could say, my dad has has Alzheimer's, and you would say, oh, I'm sorry, and that would be the end of it. But as soon as I tell you one detail, one specific, you were painting the picture. It becomes a lot more real. Yeah. How can someone? Uh, find out about your work oh through my website would be great I mean you could probably you could probably google me and find thousands of things but my website is laurencamp.com l-a-u-r-e-n-c-a-m-p dot com and also on YouTube I, I found some videos you did you are they any good lectures okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay so that was, that's also but there are a lot of my poems on my website and online elsewhere Okay, and they can find also your books through Amazon? They can find books through Amazon, through my website. What was that award? Sorry for no, me saying it, but can you share that, us the award that you just won through your publication? The So uh, 100 Hungers, the book about my father's childhood, won the Dorset Prize, which, uh, which is a publication prize. It means that a specific press was selecting it and was going to publish it. It was a wonderful prize to win. And then since the book has been published, it, um, it was, came in as finalist for the Arab American Book Award okay. and a couple other awards. And so that's been wonderful. That's great. Yeah. Congratulations Thank you. on that and, and for sharing all your experience. How was the, when you went into the high schools here in, in Rochester, how, what did the students take away or what do you try to share with them within that small frame time? Well, I don't know what they took away. Yeah. That's a question for their teachers. I hope they took something away. Um, but I, what I, I tried to, rather than a, a formal presentation, I tried to talk to them about how it is I create and how safe it is to create something, to be expressive and not to be perfect. Do you have a routine when you're trying mm, to get a set of mind to not, look at 
not with high school, not with not with youth. Well, I th- well, what about you personally? Uh, oh, do I have a routine for writing? Um, no, because my life is too busy. Okay. Um, I wish I, I I wish I could, but then I'd probably um, sort of find other things to do with it. I actually. So it can be in the day and night when you find time. To it's do when it. I find time. Sometimes I do a I'm lot playing. of revising. Yeah. Um, I can revise at any time. I can't write at any time. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard. Uh, that writers sit down and have to have a practice and sit for two hours or four hours or whatever they sit for, that doesn't work for me. I have to have a thing I'm writing. I have to have an image or a something I want to hold on to. Otherwise, I can sit with a blank piece of paper and put things down on it, but nothing. there's nothing that matters to me there. So I can always come back and revise work, but I can't always start new work. I have to start with something that matters. Okay. I never wrote a poem. Well, I ma- haven't, but there's always a chance to start. And that's what I. I I didn't start writing until I. Um, I I'm trying to think. I started writing when my mother died, um, and I think I was uh, thirty, maybe thirty-one when just had just turned thirty-one. So there's there's always a chance to start. You don't have to be. Yeah, and young. and that's where I found that it was really similar to storytelling. So mm-hmm. probably. It's, Easier than the, if you have good stories to share. <laughs> if you have good stories, or if you can locate good stories, even if they're not yours. Exactly. Also, uh, you're a host radio. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, what can you describe the show in the station that you people can follow you? Sure. Um, I do a show on Santa Fe Public Radio called Audio Saucepan. It's on. Um, in New Mexico, it's on Sundays at 6 p.m., um, and you would translate so the time. Google so I guess that's 7 p.m. New here. Mexico Public Radio. Santa Fe Public Radio. Public Radio. Santa Fe Public Radio. Um, and uh, it's the, the website is ksfr.org, like ksantaferadio.org, ksfr.org. Um, the show is mostly a music show, but I use it's one hour and I, it's a mix of all kinds of music, jazz and world music from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever interests me, I have pretty wide tastes musically. What, what do you have right now in your car or in your iPod? Or your, what do you listen lately? I listen to a lot of Middle Eastern music, a lot of oud music, okay. um, a lot of Tuareg music because it intrigues me, um, music from the Saharan Desert. Um, I listen to a lot of classic jazz from the 50s, 60s, um, some sort of trancey music like Philip Glass. Okay. And do you have call-ins during your show? I try not to take them. <laughs> it's a really busy show. It's, it's, so it's you and you have a co-host? Or? No, it's me and I'm doing, I'm doing everything. I'm, wow. Yeah, it's me doing the engineering. And I also, so things come back to back in that show. It's pretty packed. Um, I also include three poems that I've selected that aren't mine every, every single week so, that I read. So it's, it's a kind of uh, multi-multitasking for that hour. Oh. Yeah. Well, now you're making me nervous. <laughs> These two no, mics in you're here. doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that would you like to share about for somebody who, who is dealing with uh, a family member with a, a condition that 
any condition or high Alzheimer's since well, I think that's as, why you have gone through. I think as a writer, I mean, even if you're not formal, you don't formally identify as a writer, I think writing or some other creative expression, if you know, that you choose as a way to both witness and express without any pressure is incredibly helpful. Is there been any scientific work on that where people can release I, some of that stress? I don't have statistics, but I think that... In your case, you feel I feel it. My students feel it. I mean, they come into my classes, all, and I mostly teach adults and older adults, and they come in and they say... Who needs therapy when you have this? I'm, I mean, I, I do think there must be therapy, something yeah. something scientific to it because you're capturing your memories or your interests, your emotions, your experiences, and you're, you're documenting in a way that's creative, that's not just then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But it, it takes a little creativity, which everybody has, whether they believe it or not. Thank you for stopping by today and for sharing your work with us. And uh, I want to invite everybody to follow us on Facebook, on the community board, also on Twitter, on the community board, and iTunes. Uh, and please give us a review and share our podcast. Find us on iTunes, on the community board podcast. Uh, Lauren, you want to share your Twitter handle or where can people follow you? I'd rather share my website again because okay. I'm very please, bad with Twitter, <laughs> actually. Um, the website is just my name, laurencamp.com. Okay. And uh, please stay tuned for our following uh, episode. Lauren, please enjoy the spring. The snow? <laughs> <laughs> Here in Minnesota, you're going to be back hopefully tomorrow if the planes are, flies are going out. That's right. And uh, thank you again for coming in. Thank and you. Sharing your art. Thank you. Bye bye. More than just research, it's about community too. Right? See you in the community. What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to. Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to, Miguel? What's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture. <laughs>